Well, good morning, and thank you for inviting me yet again to Bridgeburn. Last Sunday morning I was over with the Alexandria Baptist Church, and very confusing, just like yourselves, they have two names. <laughs> thank you. Vale of Leaven Baptist Church, Alexandria Baptist Church, take your pick. And I was saying to them last Sunday morning, I was very pleased to be preaching last Sunday because on that day I was entering the 17th year of my retirement. Mm. Anyhow, uh, it is my great joy to be with you yet again. Alan Donaldson, who is the General Director of the Baptist Union, he writes a letter every now and then which is part of the mailing from the Baptist Union to certain people. And the recent one is headed, Great Expectations. This is what he writes. It's probably the best question I have been asked this year. It has resulted in a great deal of self-examination, and the process is not over. It is a question of faith and practice. It impacts prayer, vision, and the day-to-day -day life of every disciple. It hardly seems a biblical question, maybe one attuned more to business, but the more I consider it, the more biblical it becomes. And here is the question. What do you expect to happen when you preach, pray, worship, witness? My fear is that the truthful answer for me and for many disciples of Christ in Scotland is not a lot. I don't know how you react to that. It's quite devastating, I think. It's probably uncomfortably true. And in many companies of God's people, when we preach, when we pray, when we worship, when we witness, yes, we expect some blessing. But how much do we really expect to happen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have revealed yourself in many different ways and you have declared that you are a God who works, who does things for those who wait for you. And we ask this morning that as we listen to your word, your Holy Spirit will be active in our midst. We invite you, Father, to do things amongst us this morning. We want things to happen that will change and enrich our lives. And so please help me as I speak and all of us as we think of what is being communicated from your word. We ask for the help of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name. Amen. I put this down out of the way. I make no apology for bringing again a message, some teaching on the Holy Spirit. Because, you see, the answer to the question that Alan is raising, what do you expect to happen when we function as Christians in prayer and worship and preaching and so on? The only person who can really make things happen of a spiritual nature is not some high-powered over-the-top, ultra-gifted preacher. Not at all. The only person who can make things really happen, that God wants to happen, 
is the Holy Spirit. Some months ago, I was reading in Philippians, and I was struck by a little phrase there which I hadn't actually noticed before. Read it many times, no doubt, but it hadn't somehow registered with me as it did on that particular occasion. For there in Philippians chapter 2, Paul says to these Christians, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. He is pleading with these Christians and with all Christians to maintain that precious gift called the unity of the Spirit which God gives to his people. And we all know that motivation is very important. We require to be motivated to do the right things. And here Paul mentions various forms of motivation. Encouragement from being joined with the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, of course that should motivate us. Any comfort from his love, yes, of course, that ought to motivate us. And he slips in this little phrase, if any fellowship with the Spirit. Now, I've been asked many questions in my lifetime, but I don't recall anybody ever asking me, are you enjoying fellowship with the Spirit? Well, maybe you've had that question put to you, but I haven't. You see, when we come to the Word of God, what do we find? We find that from the very first chapter of the first book of the Bible, in the very last chapter of the last book of the Bible, the Holy Spirit's there. Genesis begins like this. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the heavens, the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Before ever man was created, there was the Spirit of God hovering over the waters. And we go to the last chapter of Revelation. And what do we find there? No surprise. We find the Holy Spirit again. The Spirit and the bride say, come. Let him who hears say, come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come. And whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. Here is the Spirit of God and the people of God saying the same thing. Issuing the same message. The Spirit and the Bride both saying, Come. Well, there's a phrase that's very similar to the one in Philippians, which we know very well, because it belongs within what we would call the best known, perhaps, of all the benedictions, blessings, at the end of New Testament letters. The grace, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So whether we're thinking of fellowship with the Spirit or fellowship of the Spirit, it sounds to me more or less the same thing. Let's take a minute to unpack this, because you see the word fellowship is a very important New Testament word. There are two essential ingredients to all true fellowship. See, fellowship means sharing in something with someone. 
So fellowship, first of all, implies association with someone else. That someone else may be another human being, another Christian, or it may be with God. But there must be someone else. You cannot have solitary confinement fellowship. It's not what the word fellowship means. Now we know from 1 John chapter 1, for example, John writes about Christians having fellowship with the Father and with his Son and also with one another. That's great. And on that occasion, John was not led to say anything about fellowship with the Holy Spirit. When we turn, for example, to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and Paul is writing to these Christians and reminding them of how their Christian life began, well, he says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He speaks about a call, and the gospel always issues a call. And here he says, God who has called you into fellowship with his Son Jesus Christ our Lord is faithful. So when we hear the good news about Jesus, his death for our sins, his rising from the dead, when the Spirit of God is bringing home to our hearts the true meaning of the Christian gospel, we are hearing a call that demands a response. And that call is into a new partnership. Because as unbelievers, we have not been in partnership with Jesus. But now, you see, the gospel is calling us to enter into a new partnership. That's what the word fellowship means. God who has called you into fellowship, partnership with his son, Jesus Christ. The second essential ingredient for fellowship is this. There must be, first of all, association with somebody. But there also must be participation in something. Just two Christians together. Well, if you spend an hour in stony silence, you might just sense you were having some kind of fellowship. I wouldn't know. But normally, normally, fellowship implies not just association with someone, but participation in something. In other words, there's a relationship here, there's a partnership here, two people are involved, or more, and something is on the agenda. They are giving attention to something. What happened with the earliest Christians? Well, we know, because we can turn to Acts chapter 2 and discover what these new believers did almost instinctively they had experienced a call into a new partnership. They had heard the gospel. The Holy Spirit had brought them to conviction of sin to repent and believe the gospel and be saved, become believers in Jesus Christ. So what did they do? Acts 2, 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. So fellowship, sharing with other believers, was linked to the word of God, the apostles' teaching. It was linked to the breaking of bread, the celebration of communion, and it was linked to prayer. And when we go over again to Philippians, for example, chapter 1 this time, we find Paul emphasizing there another area of underlining one of the things we've just mentioned. He says, in all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership, fellowship, same word, in the gospel from the first day until now. 
One of the areas in which Christians experience fellowship is in studying the gospel and becoming acquainted with the gospel and spreading the gospel to others. Those of us who have done this know it's an experience of fellowship. We're doing this very special thing together. And then, of course, there is the Lord's table. Again, mentioned, the Lord's Supper mentioned in Acts chapter 2. We go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and we find Paul speaking there about the Lord's table. He said, Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation, a sharing, a fellowship, fellowshipping in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation of fellowshipping in the body of Christ? You see, it's okay, it's not wrong if you feel you're led to do so. To break bread in your own home all alone. I don't think that's wrong. How could it be? But normally, Christians do this together. It's one of our fellowship activities. And here draw, Paul draws attention to this. This time our fellowship is around the Lord's table when our focus is essentially on the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And as we meditate on that and as we give thanks for that, we have fellowship around the Lord's Supper. <coughs> then, already this morning, we've had fellowship in worship. We have done it together. And it's a delight to worship with you here. There's a real... <coughs> blend of informality and spirituality if I can put it that way and Graham you did something that I value very highly your opening song was a proclamation of the lordship of Jesus it's a great way to begin a time of worship begin by asserting by declaring the lordship of Jesus now Philippians chapter 3 is one of these verses that I keep quoting when I'm preaching because I think it's so so important it says this we worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, who put no confidence in the flesh. Now remember, the flesh in the New Testament is not the stuff on top of our bones and our arms and legs. The flesh refers to the self, what self can do. When my daughter was a little tiny girl, <laughs> she was being asked to offered help with something she said no self do it self do it yeah? and unfortunately too many Christians are a bit like that too self will do it I'll do it I don't need your help thank you very much but you see Paul teaches us that we cannot acceptably worship God without the help of the Holy Spirit self can't do it we put no confidence in the flesh we worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and again you see we're experiencing fellowship and we're experiencing the fellowship of the Spirit as we worship together. And just for good measure, we can add one more thing. Again, it's mentioned in Acts 2. It's prayer. And Paul says to the Ephesians, pray in the Spirit on all occasions. Well, that's a bit like Psalm 150, that everything has, has breath, praise the Lord. In other words, you've all got to do it. No exceptions. Pray in the Spirit on all occasions. Not just now and again when you're feeling hyper-spiritual. Pray in the Spirit. Pray with the Spirit's help on all occasions. So you see, this whole idea of fellowship of the Holy Spirit is summed up in Galatians 5.16 where Paul says to believers, live by the Holy Spirit. 
King James Version, walk in the Holy Spirit. Live by the Holy Spirit. And that's meant to cover the whole of life. It's not just the spiritual parts. So, fellowship with the Spirit is an essential ingredient in normal Christian living. But the New Testament also speaks about freedom by the Spirit, or implies at least freedom by the Spirit. If we go to Romans 8, we find in Romans 8, uh, Paul speaking about a future day, when he says, Romans 8 verse 20, the creation, that's the whole of creation, was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice. You remember what happened? When Adam and Eve sinned, God said, the cursed curse is the ground. Your sin has affected creation. Cursed is the ground for your sake. It's going to produce thorns and thistles. There were no weeds before Adam sinned. Wonderful to be a gardener then. You see, the creation was affected by man's sin. And Paul is talking about that here when he says creation was subjected to frustration. Not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope, certain hope, that the creation one day itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay. We're living in a decaying world, a decaying, decaying planet. But one day creation is going to be liberated from its bondage to decay, and brought into what Paul describes as the glorious freedom of the children of God. Now of course in the, in the, in the life to come, in the new heavens and the new earth, we shall have new resurrection bodies. Wonderful. But here in this present life, I suspect that phrase describes God's intention for us in this present life as believers. Glorious freedom. Ah, do we always experience that? Sadly, no. Now how does the Holy Spirit help us towards a greater measure of freedom in our lives? First of all, by presenting to us the Word of God. He presents us with the Word of God. In that wonderful farewell message of Jesus to his disciples and recorded in John 14 to 16, you remember, much of what Jesus was saying was about the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit would do for the church and through the church when he came. And Jesus said in John fourteen twenty six, The Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you, he is going to teach you all things and remind you of everything I've said to you. In other words, he's going to take the word of God and explain it to you and enable you to grasp its meaning and its significance and apply it to your lives. And Jesus says something very similar in John chapter 8. You remember some Jewish people had professed to believe in him and I think Jesus was a bit suspicious about the genuineness of their faith because he said to them, if you hold to my teaching then you really are my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And these people were highly indignant, these Jews. They answered them, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves to anyone. How can you say 
that we shall be set free. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. If you are unsaved, if you're unredeemed, if you haven't been liberated by Jesus, and you think you haven't sinned, well, you're kidding yourself. Everybody who sins is a slave to sin. But then Jesus adds, if the Son himself, he himself, sets you free, you will be free indeed. You see, and as the Holy Spirit directs us to the Word of God, he would direct us to a passage like this, and any idea of being adequately liberated without Jesus and without obeying the Word of God is just imagination. Then the Holy Spirit also was working in the Old Testament times. We don't think too much about that. Well, in First Peter chapter 1, Peter says this in verse 12, concerning this salvation, the prophets, the Old Testament prophets, who spoke of the grace that was to come to you, searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, in them, the Old Testament prophets, was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Notice what Peter says about the preaching of the gospel that had brought these unbelievers to faith. He says those preachers of the gospel you heard Preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. No preacher can preach the gospel effectively without the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who opens up the word of God. It's the Holy Spirit who convicts us of sin. It's the Holy Spirit who points us to Jesus. It is nonsense to talk about having effective gospel preaching without the Holy Spirit. They like that phrase that Peter uses. So the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And this was one reason why he's active in the world today. To energize and use the preaching of the gospel to bring people to salvation. If the Holy Spirit's involved and he is in achieving our freedom, he does so by presenting us with God's word and also clearly pointing us to God's Son. Now in Romans chapter 6, Paul is writing to Christians and he says this Romans chapter 6 he says this in verse 16 don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves you are slaves to the one whom you obey whether you are slaves to sin which leads to death or to obedience which leads to righteousness but thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted, you have been set free. You have been set free and become slaves to righteousness. Now it's not immediately obvious to us, perhaps. But when we look closely at what Paul is saying there, it's, it's almost amusing. Why? Because, you see, he's saying to these Christians... All of us have a choice. And what is that choice? 
says you can be slaves or you can be slaves. Hmm. Ever seen it that way before? We're either slaves or slaves. But the great difference is on the one hand we are slaves to sin before we become Christians. And that leads to death. The wages of sin is death. <coughs> the non-Christian may be a pretty decent good living person but actually from God's standpoint he or she is a slave to sin. Sin is a powerful thing. We're all affected by it. And it works in our lives. And without the saving grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we remain throughout our lives slaves to sin. Mm. But when Jesus Christ enters our life and becomes our Lord, we are set free from sin and we become slaves to righteousness. Slaves to righteousness. That is our objective. To obey the Lord Jesus Christ and become more visibly righteous people. We're either slaves or slaves. It's helpful to realise that. Of course we turn the page and find in chapter 8 Paul saying this. Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because in or through Christ Jesus the law, and this is the law as we use the word in the law of gravity a certain principle that operates inevitably and inescapably the law of the spirit of life, that's the Holy Spirit set me free from the law of sin and death in other words the law of sin and death was operating in my life until Jesus came on board and the minute Jesus came on board the law of sin and death was overtaken exceeded in power exceeded in influence by a new principle the principle of the Holy Spirit at work in a believer changing life Paul says to the Christians in Ephesus in Christ we have redemption and redemption remember means freedom through the payment of a price we have redemption through his blood. So it's not wrong to say that well it is Jesus who sets us free in one sense. Couldn't happen without his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. To make that effectual in our lives the Holy Spirit's got to be involved and is. So where are we going? We've got the whole idea, the whole concept of fellowship with the Spirit. We're called, when the gospel calls us, we're called into fellowship with Jesus, into partnership with him and with the Holy Spirit. Fellowship, and of course with the Father as well. Fellowship with God. That's pretty wonderful, isn't it? Fellowship with the Spirit, freedom by the Spirit, and then the concept with which most Christians are more familiar, which is fullness of the Spirit. See, Paul writes these Christians in Ephesus and he says, keep on being filled. It's a present continuous tense. There are two tenses he could have used in the Greek language. One would have referred to a one-off experience. doesn't use that tense. The tense he uses is the present continuous tense, which doesn't come out in our English translation. Keep on, keep on, 
being filled with the Spirit. As we really study the New Testament and take seriously what God is saying to us, we can't escape the fact that being filled with the Holy Spirit for the Christian, you could say it's an option, but it's not meant to be an option. It is an obligation. See, Paul was not just slipping in a little bit of advice that the Christians there could accept or reject. He was actually issuing a command. Now, I don't enjoy saying hard things to good people, and you're good people. <laughs> the fact is that for all of us, myself included, if we are not filled with the Spirit, there's a serious measure of disobedience in our life. We're not experiencing normal Christianity. If you come back to Alan Donaldson's letter to the Baptist churches, if it's true that much of the time when we gather together to worship, to pray, and to preach, and so on, you know, we have a fair idea that God will do certain good things, and some of us will go away with a bit of a spiritual enrichment. But do we expect God to move in real power among us? Which is the great need of the church in this nation is spiritual revival. And that is the work of the Holy Spirit. Let's look at this business of being filled with the Spirit. We have to say in the light of Scripture, it is absolutely normal. It is normal. My adult life has been blessed with wonderful good health, but when I was a boy, when I was a child, I had all sorts of illnesses, and I've lost count of the number of times I had a thermometer stuck in my mouth to see whether or not my temperature was normal, 98.4. You see, it's possible to be living a Christian life that is in God's eyes normal, or a Christian life that is in God's eyes abnormal. And I can't help thinking that as I observe Christians throughout the different churches I visit and the church in which I'm a member, many Christians settle for a somewhat abnormal Christian life. Let's just take a minute to see how much the Holy Spirit was involved in the very preparation for Jesus' coming. You see, we know that in fulfilment of his plan and purpose God prepared a man who would be what we call the forerunner of Jesus who would prepare the way for the ministry of Jesus and we know him as John the Baptist well he was a bit of a miracle baby yes of course he was Luke chapter 1 Zechariah this oldish Jewish priest is on duty in the temple whatever he was doing at the time he was interrupted by an angel Gabriel who said don't be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth is going to bear you a son. You are to give him the name John. And he goes on to describe this wonderful child that Elizabeth is going to produce. And among the things he says about John the Baptist, Gabriel tells Zechariah, he's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth, which is not a normal thing. But for John, it was to be a reality. 
Now, Zechariah reacted as many others would have reacted and said, well, I don't, I don't think this, this, is, this is ridiculous. I mean, my wife and I are past childbearing age and <laughs> how can this be? And I rather like the way Gabriel responded because the old man Zechariah says to Archangel, Archangel Gabriel, I'm an old man. My wife is well on years. And Gabriel replied, I can imagine with a smile on his face, I'm Gabriel. <laughs> You're an old man, yes, I know that. But I'm Gabriel. And I stand in the presence of God. And I've been sent to speak to you. And listen, you will not speak a word until this child is born. God takes our unbelief kind of seriously, does he not? Anyway, that was the beginning. And then we read about the same angel Gabriel visiting Mary and telling her that she was going to have a special baby. And Mary can't believe it is possible and she, she's not married and, and she's a virgin and she said, how can this be? And the angel answers, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. It's going to be a miracle baby. Oh, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. That's how it's going to be. Now, news reaches Mary that her relative Elizabeth is five months pregnant. This old woman who was past childbearing age, she is five months pregnant. And Mary does what most women would do. I've got to go and see her. I've got to go and see this. So she goes to visit Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, when Mary came in through the door, the baby in Elizabeth's womb leaped. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Unusual circumstances in which to be filled with the Spirit. Not in a Holy Spirit meeting in church. And then, of course, eventually baby John is born and it's time for the naming ceremony and uh, people want to call him Zechariah after his father. And his mother says, no, 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 he's to be called John. And they say, but none of your relations are called John. We don't, we don't do these things. And they will ask his dad. And so Zechariah is given a writing tablet and writes, his name is John. And as soon as he writes these words, he can talk again. After that long nine months rest. Wonderful. What happens next? Not surprising. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. I mean, no wonder John the Baptist had a pretty powerful ministry. He's baptized and he's filled with the Spirit in his mother's womb. Mom and Dad, both in their old age, filled with the Spirit of God. Now, we haven't time to go through the whole New Testament. You'll be glad to know, uh, <laughs> to look at all this. But we just look briefly at Acts chapter 2 and remind you, that on the day of Pentecost, these 120 believers in Jerusalem were all together. They've been told by the Lord to wait, wait, wait. And they did. They waited in prayer. They were all together in one place. And suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire separated and came to rest in each of them. All of them were filled. Instantly. All together. All of them. Filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. And so on through the New Testament. When, when the early church suffered persecution, as it did early on, Peter and John, having been in prison, were released, got out again, and joined the fellow believers and lifted up their voices together in, in prayer to God, quoting Psalm number 2, which is a very, very relevant psalm for the society in which we're living today. Read it and you'll find out what I mean.
They quote that psalm in prayer to God and they pray and they ask not for an easier way out. They don't ask to be let off the hook and avoid persecution. No, no. What do they pray? Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders. In other words, do some Holy Spirit things through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Hey, wait a minute. They'd been filled with the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Yes. But that's why we're told to keep on being filled. Because they must have a little bit dried up with the process. And now they're all filled afresh with the Spirit of God. And they speak the word, word of God boldly. And that church of that early day was a power to be reckoned with. My heart was sad. I don't know about you. When I watched the news and saw the reporting of the Scottish Parliament legalising gay marriage and outside protesting were a small bunch of rather bedraggled looking people with banners and posters and stuff and I almost wished they hadn't been there. How different it would be if a mighty band of people had been there and there had been a mighty blast of a trumpet and a mighty preaching of the gospel make the politicians think twice. Being filled with the Holy Spirit, as we're seeing, is incredibly normal. After all, our Lord Jesus himself came from his baptism and told, we're told, he came from the Jordan full of the Spirit and was led into the desert for his time of temptation, for his encounter with Satan. Fullness of the Spirit is normal. And already from what I've been saying, I have implied surely it is necessary. So even back in the Old Testament, in the prophecy of Zechariah, one of the things that Zechariah was led to write just sums it all up, where God says, not by might, not by power, in other words, human ability, not by these things, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And if only down to the centuries the church had held onto that as part of its motto, by my spirit, says the Lord. You remember when uh, there was a minor problem in the early church over catering arrangements and the apostles said, well, we're not going to get involved in that. We, we've got to attend to the word of God in prayer. Uh, we'll appoint others to take care of this. And uh, did they appoint some gifted administrators? No. They said, choose seven men full of the Holy Spirit and it was the number one qualification for these people to sort out a domestic problem was that they'd be filled with the Holy Spirit. Hmm. Well, what about prayer? We're taught specifically in Romans chapter 6 that we don't know how to pray as we ought. Romans chapter 8, I'm sorry. Paul writes to these Christians in Rome and he says we know that in all things God works for good and others than another one we want uh, in Romans chapter 8 and verse 31 he says 26 I'm sorry uh, in the same way the spirit helps us in our weakness 
we do not know what or how to pray. But the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. I would assume, I dare to assume, I hope very much, that all of you here this morning seek each day to spend some time with the Lord in a time of prayer and reading of the Scriptures. I know some Christians can very easily abandon the practice and it's most unhelpful and most unfortunate. When I begin my morning prayer time, what is my first request? Holy Spirit, please help me to pray. I mean, I've been praying for half a century, but I don't know how to pray. Please help me to pray. Yeah. So, we're nearly there. I find it very interesting that when we go back to the Old Testament and look to see who was the first person and what were the circumstances of the first person ever described in the Bible as being filled with the Holy Spirit. Was it someone who was going to be a prophet or a priest or a king? No. It was a craftsman. A craftsman. Exodus 31 verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, See, I've chosen Bezalel, and I've filled him with the Spirit of God, with skill, ability, and knowledge in all kinds of crafts. Why? Because this man was to oversee the construction of the tent of meeting, as it's called in the NIV, a very important ingredient in the worship of these Jewish people, the very symbol of God's presence amongst them. And this man, who was no prophet and no preacher, no king, a craftsman, metal worker, joiner, whatever he was, the first man mentioned in Scripture to be filled with the Spirit. So it's not just people like me who are called to preach. It's not just missionaries. It's not just evangelists. It's not just people who are somehow involved in a big way in spiritual things. Every Christian is called to be filled with the Holy Spirit of God. Let's end with two words from Jesus. Very familiar words, I think. In John chapter 7, verse 37... We're told that on the last greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If a man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whatever, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. And John explains this by saying, By this he meant the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. In other words, Jesus uttered these words before Calvary, before Pentecost, but they would come, become true after Pentecost. If a man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Streams of living water will flow from within him. That's a beautiful promise, a wonderful promise. This is part of my daily prayer. As I seek a fresh infilling of the Holy Spirit day by day.
What for? So that streams of living water may flow out from me. We're meant to be water carriers, spiritual water, bringing the Holy Spirit into situations where God wants to be at work in the lives of other people. That's an enormous privilege, is it not? And finally, one more word from Jesus. If you, he said in Luke 11, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, and we all know how to do that, how much more will my Father in Heaven give the Holy Spirit, give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him. Ask, and you shall receive fellowship with the Spirit, freedom by the Spirit, fullness of the Spirit. Let's pray.